Well, our text this evening is found in Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. Let's turn there together as we continue our look through the book of Proverbs. And let's read verses 15 to 18. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumbles in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Well, tonight we want to think about what the book of Proverbs says about perseverance of the saints. And uh, one of the uh, approaches that the book of Proverbs gives us in practical, daily, wise living is how we navigate difficulties. How we navigate our relationships with other people. And that's seen in in a, a multiple of ways in the book of Proverbs, isn't it? The, the relationships between fathers and sons and parents and neighbors and workers. Uh, just people that we uh, interact with on a daily basis. But because we live in a fallen world, we live with those uh, with whom we will contend. And especially in a Christian context where there will be uh, uh, trouble. Where... Jesus and the Bible writers as a whole point out the fact that when we stand with Him, when we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are particularly uh, targeted by the evil one. As the old Puritan said, he who stands closest to the captain is a sure target for the archers. He who stands closest to the captain, that is Jesus, is a sure target for the archers. That means if the closer we walk with the Lord, the, the more progress we feel we're making in our relationship with the Lord, we come under the uh, watchful eye of, of the devil himself. And uh, the writer of Proverbs is aware of those situations as well. This is something that is, uh, is true of God's people in all ages. And it's a theme that is expounded in the Old and in the New Testament in uh, in wonderful ways we can think of Isaac and Ishmael we can think of the we can think of uh, uh, Jacob and Esau we can think of so many different people we can think of on a broader level we can think of nations like Israel and other nations that they interacted with uh, we can think of Jesus and the, the the people that surrounded him the Pharisees and the Sadducees we think of Paul and the, the trouble that was that had come against Paul from within his own circle People like Demas, uh, or people outside, unbelieving Jews who did not accept the, the message and direction of Paul. And so the, the, the Bible speaks a great deal of the fact that, that there is a general de degree of suffering that all people will go through. All people in the world will suffer to some measure. But God's people... Uh, suffer in a particular way because of their solidarity with Jesus. Uh, for their adherence to the truth. And we have been 
looking at that to some degree in our, our letter to letters to the seven churches of Asia, as Jesus is uh, uh, trying to shore up, to strengthen the churches, to prepare, to prepare their hearts for suffering, to be willing to stand for the truth in a very godless society. And we saw how bad it was getting when, when the world and even uh, immorality was getting into the church. And Jesus had to speak very uh, uh, strongly into that situation. But here in this, these verses, uh, the writer of Proverbs is, encourages the righteous. Encourages those who are walking on the path of wisdom who have decided to go down that road and help them to understand if I am walking with the Lord, if I am live, living a wise life, why do I suffer as I do? Why this persecution? Why this pushback from society around me as a whole? And uh, to a greater or lesser extent, we, many of us, know of that. Uh, wherever we are, at our workplace, at our school, uh, where uh, even in, in families at times, we will in, in, encounter that pushback from serving the Lord. It says here in verse 15, Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. Charles Bridges, who uh, wrote a commentary on Proverbs, says this is really written not specifically for the wicked, but is, he's directing his attention to the righteous here. Encouraging the righteous by basically speaking to these to wicked people that, that, that uh, he, he uh, imagines before him, saying that the wicked ought not to boast. And so you can say that to a, a righteous person, a, a child of God who is, who is going through these things. And he is speaking here, uh, as if he were speaking to this wicked person. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of a righteous. Do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. The righteous fall seven times and rises again. And so it's spoken uh, not so much to wicked men, but in defiance of them as... Uh, as uh, uh, Bridges says, for the encouragement of good people that are threatened by them. And so the, the, the righteous man here is described as having fallen seven times. And that, if you've been following along in Revelation, you've been seeing the significance of numbers. The, the seven churches of Asia uh, speaking of a perfect representation of the church in all ages. Not that these specific churches only had these problems, but it's typical of the church down through the centuries. And so the number seven, the seven spirits of God, not that God has seven spirits, but it talks about the perfection of the Spirit of God in all His capacities, in His wisdom, in His grace, in His power, in all of these things. And so here, I think the, the writer of Proverbs is using seven in that way as well. Not that the righteous fall only seven times. If he falls eight times, forget it. All bets are off. The Lord has nothing. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying that the righteous will fall many, many times. 
And the Lord delivers him from that. How he falls is not uh, uh, specifically outlined here. It simply says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Well, of course you can get the sense that one of the ways in which the righteous will fall is through the persecution of the wicked that is outlined here in the context of the verses. But there's more ways than that that when the righteous fall, it could be something physical, it could be some uh, uh, aspect of their lives where they have maybe lost something, maybe lost their job, maybe fallen into sickness, but it could be some moral failure as well. And the wicked are not to rejoice over them because the Lord sustains the righteous. And so, throughout the Word of God, God's grace is held up. The throne of grace. God's mercy. God's redemption. And it is in that that the psalmist hopes. So much of the book of Psalms take us down that road, don't they? Lord, from the depths to Thee I cry. Hear my prayer. Lord, if You were to mark iniquity, who would stand? But with You there is forgiveness that You might be feared. And so there is this uh, uh, focus on God's grace in restoring the righteous. Restoring the man and woman of God. So that the, uh, the, uh, the wicked, as they look in on the life of the righteous, at no time can they rejoice over them because the Lord sustains them. The Lord is going, has determined to be faithful to them, to uphold them in all times. What a wonderful thing that that comes to such full and glorious expression in Jesus. How, how the righteous are upheld. How this comes to the, the most wonderful fulfillment in Jesus. When we look at the cross, when we hear the Gospel stories of Jesus going to the cross and suffering in such agonizing ways. Then the words of the psalm, the, the uh, writer of Proverbs here is fulfilled. That the Lord uh, upholds the righteous. He rises again. Through the literal death and rising again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's where our focus uh, ought to be taken at all times. When we're thinking through Verses like this. So that whatever happens, uh, we are sustained. So that when we look to the cross, we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we say, we are serving One who overcame not only sin, who paid the ultimate price there on the cross, but overcame the physical limitations that were set against us. The ultimate enemy, death. The grave could not hold Him. And through extension and through connection with um, Jesus, neither will the grave hold us. And we find that so in so many places throughout Scripture when the children of Israel are there. Uh, it's it's the, the defining moment for them uh, as the people of God on the banks of the Red Sea. The Egyptians on one side and the uh, uh, the sea on the other. And here is uh, 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 the, the greatest army on the face of the earth coming toward them. And they are standing on this sea uh, at night. 
And the, even there, the, the, the physical impediments that are against them are now wiped away by God as God makes a way through the sea. And as morning comes, they're standing on the shore of the Red Sea watching as the chariot wheels and the horses and all the implements of the Egyptians are washing up on uh, the, the sea. And God is letting them see that. God is letting them, and, and, and it's incorporated into the very story where they, where they see the actual implements of the Egyptians washed up on the sea. So we see the totality of God's salvation. So that the Egyptians rejoicing, saying, we've got them. The sea has hemmed them in. You know, it, it's over for them. They're rejoicing over the people of God. And the Lord makes a way through the sea. And that was to be a defining moment for the Israelites, not just then, but in all times. Of course, that is superseded, isn't it, by the Lord Jesus. When He is there uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration and He's talking with who but Moses and Elijah. And they're not talking about the Red Sea. As amazing as that would be, that would be an amazing conversation. But it said they spoke of His exodus that He would perform in Jerusalem. Showing us, showing the people of God again that there is nothing. Sin, natural elements, nothing in this world. As Paul describes for us there at the end of Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul just starts to pull in left, right, and center from every possible angle of dim or dimension of existence. Height, depth, principalities, powers, things present, things to come. Whatever. He throws everything in but the kitchen sink to say that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And, and it's curious that, that in that uh, same chapter, Paul is speaking, as it were, to the enemies of God as well. Much like uh, the writer of Proverbs is doing here. What shall we say then uh, of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's saying that to the cosmos. He's saying that to the principalities and powers. Rejoice not over them, you wicked. Rejoice not over them, the, over, the powers of hell. For God has done something in Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. How the Gospel then opens up for us what the psalmist is getting across to his people here. Or the, writer of Proverbs, is getting across to his people that the wicked has no capacity to boast over the, uh, the righteous falling. For he may fall and fall and fall. But when his trust and hope is in the Lord, he will rise again. He will rise again. And we carry that with us. 
the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in the chapter on perseverance of his saints, it says, they whom God have, has accepted in His beloved, that is in Christ, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So Paul says, He who has begun this good work in you will see it to the end unto the day of Christ Jesus. And though it isn't uh, explicit here, uh, the, that keeping is by the grace of God. It's explicit in other places. The one that we looked at last week. The name of the Lord is a high tower. Those who run into it are, the, the righteous run into it and are saved. This perseverance, the confession goes on to say then, depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. And so Paul, writing to the uh, uh, Ephesians in chapter 1, he goes into the doctrine of election not to stir up some theological hornet's nest to pit uh, uh, Arminians against Calvinists down the down the through the centuries, but as a comfort to God's people, the Ephesians who are living as many churches did under the shadow of Satan in a pagan culture, who were struggling and and, and going through the mill, and how how would you comfort a people in that? Paul then gives this huge, glorious, big picture. Chosen in Him from the foundation of the world. And so the, the confession says it very well. This depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. Election. Paul leads with election. So many of the New Testament writers lead with the doctrine of election. As Peter does in the chapter that we read uh, uh, earlier. In chapter 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles. What, what comfort that would bring the, elect, the exiles in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and all these different places that were scattered. They were exiles. They were strangers in a strange land. But they were chosen in Christ before land existed. Before an earth existed. And they will be upheld. And so Paul goes on to, to pray uh, in Ephesians 1 that they might know the power, that they might know the glory of God in salvation, and so on. It goes, the, the confession goes on to say, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. All these things conspiring together in the child of God, in, the, in your life on a daily basis. I mean, for us to think of our lives as anything less than a miracle and glorious is a crime. We are, as believers, the object of God's attention. He who keeps Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. His eye is upon His children at all times. And all of these things 
we read them and we take them for granted so often, don't we? They become cliche to us. Elect from the foundation of the world. What? That is an amazing thing. And that God is dealing with us on that basis. And that's the, the value, one of the many values of coming to church week after week, coming to a Bible study, opening your Bibles on a, on a regular basis because it's there right in front of you. And it ought to send us away saying, this is nothing less than spectacular and glorious. That God is dealing with me in this way that I'm being upheld. Sometimes you hear people, and we're often drawn to amazing testimonies, aren't we? And we go and we hear somebody who was delivered from a life of crime or drugs or whatever, and they say, oh, look at the power of God in that person's life. You say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a kind of a second-class Christian. I wish I had some story to tell, right? I wish I had some story to tell my kids or my, you know, if I'm witnessing somewhere at a youth group or something like that. and have an amazing testimony. And yet, it doesn't matter how you come into the Christian life. We come in by the power of God. First Peter again, according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's what, what brought us here. Whether you are a crime boss in New York City or a young boy or girl growing up in disabled church, you are brought in by the power of God's Spirit. And then there's a whole life of being upheld and sustained. So that every day there is a witness among God's people to say, you know what? The Lord is protecting me from things unseen. The arrow that flies by day and the pestilence that stalks at noonday and the dangers at night and the perils of the principalities and powers that come in against me. You may think you're living a very normal life, but you, could, you have a testimony. And the power of God is every bit as much at work in the lives of Christians, sustaining them through their lives to give them that testimony. To say, look, I am upheld. Look at the dangers that surround the child of God every day. And yet, the Lord delivers us from them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them uh, it delivers him out of them all. Paul talked about, and he cataloged those in first in Second Corinthians, and we read that chapter this morning, First Second Corinthians uh, 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 seven, where Paul lists a whole host of things that he was delivered from: shipwrecks and stonings, and so on and so forth. He says again in Second Corinthians four, "We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed; perplexed, but not driven to despair." Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Being given over to death. <laughs> it's not random, in other words, the troubles that we face. The tensions that work. The troubles in your family. All those things that providentially come into your life that you prob probably wish weren't there. But Paul says we are being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so he says here, 
he falls seven times and rises again. That's what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection life. The resurrection life. Though we live by the power of the resurrection, we die daily and we rise again in newness of life. But we are, it, there's a design to it. That's what the writer of Proverbs is also showing us. That it's not random. It's not a random collection of, of mishaps or uh, things that come into a person's life. But it's designed by a wise and lovingly, loving Heavenly Father. And this is what Paul prayed. I want to know Him. The power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. The, the two are so closely intertwined. And so he says here, we are always given over to death so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in us. And that's what we want. That's what we want to see. Even if we're having to be given over to death on a daily basis, we want to know of the power, the life of Jesus manifest in our mortal flesh. So that the child of God now has a, 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 a context to approach suffering, approach these things, even sometimes moral failure that we providentially find ourselves in, so that we will be more watchful over our hearts and our souls. All of these things God has designed. Paul, for example, in, in uh, uh, is speaking about his thorn in the flesh. He goes to God and he pleads with God three times that he might take this from, from him. We don't know what that thorn is. But it could have been some spiritual struggle that Paul had. But Jesus leaves it there that he might know a more important lesson that his grace is enough. That His grace is sufficient. And Paul rejoiced in that. Therefore, I will rejoice all the more in my infirmity, says Paul. That God's power, God's grace might be magnified in my life. So John Gill says that he rises by renewed repentance and under the fresh discoveries of pardoning grace and mercy to heal his backsliding. And there's something very precious in that. If you can emerge from something saying, His grace. How amazing is His grace. I magnify the cross. I magnify His love. I magnify His long-suffering. His patience in my life. Let not the wicked then rejoice over me. That because though I fall seven times, the Lord will raise me up again. But he goes on in dealing with our adversaries. He says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away from him in anger. God will deal with the wicked. The wicked stumbles in times of calamity. 
that ultimately the wicked, though he may prosper from, for a time in temporal things, yet in the larger scale of things, he has no help. But even there, the righteous are to reflect the character of their Lord. Gloating becomes a sin in and of itself. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. To do that would make you like your enemy who was gloating over the fall of the righteous. When they fell into calamity, laughing and mocking, it's to take your part with them. And God is calling His people to a higher standard. You see this at various times in the life of of the righteous, the, in the life of godly people in the Bible. You can think of when Abner died, uh, who was a, a, a statesman in, uh, in uh, the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel, the northern tribes. And when he died, rather than rejoicing over the death of the enemy, David calls for a response of mourning over Abner. Jesus Himself wept over Jerusalem. You who stone the prophets and kill, and, and, and kill those who are sent to you. This is the level of evil that, the, as we alluded to this morning, this is the level of evil that these leaders were engaged in. Killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent. Perpetrating such evil and yet Jesus weeps over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And we imbibe that same Spirit of our Lord when, when those who, are, who have taken the posture as our enemies fall into dismay or fall into trouble. We are not to gloat like they. But we are to show pity. As it was with God. When God looked at us there was a spirit of pity stirred within him. His compassions were stirred. And he, does, he did not deal with us as enemies. And that's why we're here tonight. That God had compassion on his enemies. While we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And if that is the case with God, how much more is he calling his people to reflect? A spirit of generosity even toward those who are our enemies. Wherever they are. Again, you can think of people in your workplace or people in your life that may be quite adversarial towards you. They can't speak a good word. They're always getting a dig in or uh, some kind of insult. A backhanded insult or however they do it. And what is our response? Is it one of anger? Rejoicing when we hear that news that they didn't get the job or they got fired or whatever. And there's a certain delicious delight that overcomes us and say, ah, they got theirs. No, that ought not to be the case. And when we feel that way, we ought to say, I'm not there yet. With all my going on about Christian maturity and about growing in Christ and the Bible, there's something there that is not in keeping with the Spirit of my Lord. 
Because the Lord says here, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And I have to take that then to the Lord. Say, Lord, there's, a, there's a, 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 this spirit within me that rejoices over the fall of my enemy. Paul then says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so if we belong to Christ, we will not only rejoice in His redemption, that though we fall seven times a day, we will rise, we will enjoy the redemption that is in Christ by His blood and by His Spirit. Though we are given over to death, each and every day, we rise again in newness of life. We enjoy that. But we also need to remember that we are to reflect the Spirit of our Lord in our attitude toward even our enemies. And seek as He did to overcome evil with good. So Jesus Himself says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So where do we stand in all of these things this evening? As we think about the various things that we might be going through, that the challenges that you might be facing, the ups and downs. They could be adversaries that come at you from outside or it could be struggles that you have within. We rise and fall in many ways. But the proverb, writer of Proverbs says that we take refuge in the name of the Lord. He is our high tower. And in those circumstances, we decide, like the psalmist that we, in the psalm that we sang at first, I, when I'm afraid, he doesn't say what he's afraid, tempted to be afraid of. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And so may it be with ourselves that each and every day we may make that conscious decision to look to the Lord. It is Him who raises us up. It is Him whose resurrection, it's not just power, it's resurrection power that raises us before our enemies and gives us a spirit of forgiveness toward them. Not to, you, 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 could, uh, you can rise up again in the face of your enemy and come back against him, but no. The sweet Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ causes us to rise and love our enemies and bless them that curse us. And so, we are called to such a great and glorious standard. We're called to be as children of our Father in Heaven in all of these ways. May God bless His Word to us tonight. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that You would help us in these things. Lord, we are beset oftentimes uh, with uh, adversaries, but none greater, Lord, than the sin within our own heart. We rise and fall, O oh God, day in and day out. Our conscience continually accusing us. But Lord, we thank You that in Jesus we have a place of refuge. That we can run to Him. And that though we fall, we can rise again. Oh, Father, help us in our dealings with those around us. You said that Your children will have adversaries in this world. That we will come under the, uh, the uh, watchful eye of the power of darkness. 
And we will be tempted to respond in kind with hatred and bitterness and jealousy and backbiting. But, O oh, Father, help us to be like our Father in heaven who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. O oh, Father, we pray that You would continue to bless us now at this time and part us with Your blessing as we sing our parting song of praise. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, let's uh, turn to...